Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, May 13th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So we've been warning, we've been telling you, we've been warning you, and now our warnings have come to pass. Uh, The Labor Department released uh, inflation numbers yesterday, and they are way worse than anybody anticipated. Uh, A jump of 4.2% in April from a year earlier, up from 2.6% for the year uh, ended in March. So uh, we have we have increases everywhere in in uh, in the cost of goods. Uh, some are there. There are some things that are sort of odd, like uh, not odd, but interesting, but don't really uh, speak to a longer term problem, like a ten percent jump in the cost of used cars, which has a has various uh, causes, but. Um, uh, the point here is that uh, this is happening as the economy, of course, is heating up again. And a lot of the spending that we are anticipating from the various Biden bills and Democratic bills um, has only just started. So um, we can't say, ah, well, this is because, look, there's this sort of one-term infusion of government money into the economy that has, you know, caused this uh, this one-time spike. It's not a one-time spike. This money is going to be rolling through the economy for at least the next several months. And therefore, there is no reason to believe that this, uh, these, this jump is, um, you know, is anomalous. Um, and it's everything you know about inflation, right? It's, uh, it's too much money chasing too few goods. It's, um, uh, and then we have this whole issue of the, that we keep talking about, about the competition, uh, government borrowing versus private sector borrowing, government money versus private sector money, government in the market, eating up goods that, uh, would also could be, uh, uh, bought by the, by the private sector and therefore competing for those goods. Um, and a, this know, didn't just happen, though. It's not like the Biden administration just started doing this. We threw $6 trillion into the economy in 2020. Right. It didn't but exist. I, no, but what we have here is a jump in one month of like 50%. In other words, if you go from, if you go from 2.6% in March to 4.2% in April, you know, uh, that is not, that is not a, an artifact of 2020. What happened in 2020 is all this money came in from the government because the gross national product, the gross domestic product, had declined so precipitously because of the shutdown of work workforces, it did actually replace consumer spending, right? It wasn't right, but to your point, that yeah. money is still being spent. The money that was passed in 2020, in March of 2020, right. and, and in June of 2020 is still being ruled out. It is. And we're now going to have another several trillion dollars that has been pumped into the economy. And so uh, the inflationary spiral appears to have begun. And it's like one of those things, which is, it's like a QED thing. X, you know, you do X and Y happens. You know, you revoke, you you end bail and and people get out on the street and commit more crimes. Like, these are things that, uh, you know, uh, a rational person who looks at things and doesn't, uh, you know, there, there's that great line by Orwell, you know, some ideas are so stupid 
that only an intellectual could believe them. Like you can sort of, you can pretend, make up theories because you want to have large government spending, that large government spending isn't going to have an inflationary effect. Uh, but you need theories. You need to be kind of brilliant to sort of like over, you know, uh, turn your eyes away from, you know, from simple rational reality and come up with some uh, arcane explanation for why that isn't what's going to happen. And that's partially what is happening right now. But there's also there's something weird, too, about this particular moment because of the pandemic and the whole pandemic year where I think a lot of Americans forgot how much we spent in 2020. So was, I'm glad Noah brought that up. But there was also a sense that, you know what, we're just going to throw money at this problem because this is an un- unbelievable problem. It's, you know, a once in a generation sort of situation. Now, however, we're, we're coming to this point where a lot of people and particularly a lot of economists are looking at the, what's happening with the economy. And that excuse no longer is going to hold as people wait, you know, as people go to the grocery store and pay more for everyday items, as people worry about whether there's, you know, uh, whether inflation is going to get worse. So but the Biden administration has a political investment in the idea of continuing the kind of this isn't we, we can't play by the regular rules. We have to do everything big and better and build back better. And that's going to that's confronting reality, I think, a lot quicker than this administration expected it to just with all the the economic markers. I think that's a very important point, because what does Biden say about his jobs bill and his whatever you want to call it? He says this is this is a once in a generation investment, right? That was not what coronavirus spending was. Coronavirus spending was the building is on fire. The money is the hose to put the fire out. And then, of course, once the fire is out, you're kind of supposed to turn the hose off, or you're going to start you're going to start you know rotting the foundations of the building with the water that is being poured in there. And um, and the once in a generation investment thing is the same kind of language that uh, Democrats try to use to justify large-scale spending. Bill Clinton did it in 1993. He was like, it's a once-in-a-generation investment. You keep reading pieces in Vox and various other places and that whole theory of Build Back Better that like, we can't just go back to where we were at the beginning of the pandemic because that was unacceptable. We need to be better than we were then. Well, you know, the hell with you. Like, that... Six hundred thousand people dying does not then give you license to decide that you want to play all of your experiments that you've been dreaming of playing with, you know, with public money. Um, you know that they're not dead, so that you get to like, you know, get to like make childcare, you know, infrastructure. You know, regarding the um. The, the idea that you you have to be inventive um, and, uh, uh, you know, you have to be an intellectual to come up with arguments and justifications um, about why these policies aren't causing harm. The defense um, uh, on the left among people who, who believe in these policies is exactly the opposite. They say, oh, well, you know, uh, conservatives will come up with these theories about how uh, uh, spending is going to cause inflation, but uh, this is just this is just a- academic stuff that we've seen disproven before, and uh, they say that about minimum wage, you know. But in, in reality, that doesn't happen. 
it's 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 interesting that they play that game um and when in fact they 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 are the ones um testing out these experiments and that's I, I'm glad you brought up the minimum wage because that was one of those uh, debates that was happening where the, the systemic argument that the Democrats wanted to make in order to you know spend 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 and, and increase minimum wage met up with reality when reporters would actually go and talk to small business owners and say so you know you know what's going to happen when the minimum wage thing kicks in and they're like oh yeah we're going to have to let a few employees go because we'll be able to meet payroll at that rate and literally the actual day to day practical realities point and this is the this is fertile ground for any conservative lawmaker and it's it's a shame they're too, you know, embroiled in their own uh, chaos to, to do it. But this is this is at the heart of the messaging of any good conservative movement is to say, look, what look at what's happening to your family in your community day by day to the price of groceries, the price of gas, the way your schools are teaching your kids. It's all local. And I do think the systemic arguments are extremely appealing to ideologues and they're very easy to message in the media, but they're not many people's reality. And that's the point where the Republicans really need to, to start arguing. And, you know, B- Biden is, is doing this, by the way, on the, the hiring crisis, right? He's, he, he got out there and said, you know, well, I don't see any, I don't see any connection between uh, 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 the, the relief uh, Bill and uh, our hiring problem. You know that's 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 a theory that people are floating around, but that that's not that's not what's actually happening. When in fact, yeah. it's yeah. right. Then in front he of said us. it, and then he and then he yelled at everybody and yeah. said, "You better be looking for a job because he understood because while they are, you know, they 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 could not resist the temptation uh, of this moment that was handed to them by Donald Trump screwing up the election in Georgia and force and getting a hundred thousand Republicans to stay home and flip the Senate to the Democrats. And I'm going to keep, I'm going to say that every single time that this comes up, because I'm going to remind people that you think Donald Trump is so wonderful and the, and oh, it was so unfair what happened to him and everything. Every single cent that is being spent that you don't want spent is the result of him screwing up the Georgia specials and don't, not specials, the Georgia runoffs. And if you forget that, then you are being, uh, you are being not only historically illiterate, but you were being, uh, you were being a, uh, a, an apologist, uh, for something that deserves no apologia. Um, so every cent that is being spent here, you know, this is, they couldn't resist it. They couldn't resist it. And so they are going to have to, and they're pleasing everybody who voted you know, they're pleasing a lot of people who voted for them, but they're going to have to deal with the consequences of doing it. Just like the whole point is, great, here's free money for everybody and everybody goes great. And then it turns out that 75 to 80% of it is taken up by the regressive tax known as, as inflation. So if you actually look look and you think about it, uh, if, if, if policies, if these policies are designed to help the least among us, uh, inflation is the most destructive force uh, as you go down the socioeconomic ladder, uh, because of course, a roll of toilet paper costs the same for a rich person that does for a poor person. So if it goes up, you know, if it goes up twenty five percent for a rich person, it goes up twenty five. That's like a coin in the pocket, and it is not twenty. Is not a coin in the pocket for somebody who makes. a year that toilet paper costs 25% more this week than it did last week. Uh, It's a regressive tax. It hits people unequally. It hits the poor and working class and lower middle class unequally harder. And you can throw all the money you want to at them. And then you're just taking it away with the other hand. You don't want to, 
Nobody wants inflation. I mean, actually, there are people who think inflation has a positive value, and that's a whole other set of complicated arguments. But um, you don't want to take it away from consumers. But that's a necessary byproduct of unprecedented levels of public spending that are spent in this way, right? I mean, it's not like you could, in theory, you could sort of spend $2 trillion and somehow give it to businesses to hire. I, I mean, I don't know. There's a whole there's a whole way of thinking about this that is a little different, but this was more like a Keynes classic Keynesian stimulus. Put it in the hands of people, and then guess what? You know, you give it to them while the economy is growing and heating up, and there is going to be this war over resources. That is that is what we are seeing now. And then, un- and then unintended other things that happen. Uh, we were talking before the show about this uh, semiconductor shortage uh, that... Um, that has raised the price of uh, part of the reason for the increase in prices of used cars. And we of course have the, uh, uh, the pipeline uh, ransomware shutdown that is caused to insert, you know, a, a surge in, in, in gas prices this week that supposedly is going to end pretty soon. Um, you know, so that, that May number, uh, that April number is going to be matched with a May number that is almost certainly going to be worse. Like if April was, you know, 4, 4.2%, May is going to be worse than April. And so, I, I you know, um, we are, people are going to start making personal decisions based on what they're seeing in their pocketbooks and at the, at the stores and at the pump and all that. Noah, what's your, what's your take on the political uh, consequences of a lot of this? Well, I think there are two, two things. One, they're pretty disastrous for Democrats. It's shocking the extent to which they're ideologically committed to their program, such to the point that they don't recognize the existential political peril that's ahead of them. Gallup had a poll yesterday showing that a full 20%, one in five Americans, are having trouble paying for food. That's deadly. Just deadly. And they will not make fine distinctions about the political parties in power. They will lash out at whomever is on the ballot, if that is the sentiment that prevails next November. But they also might get a reprieve in the form of Republican governors. The politics of this are absolutely toxic to the point that that will affect everybody and anybody who's sentient knows it. So Republican governors, if they have the potential to do this, and some Democratic governors, if they have the potential to do this, are already scaling back the excess benefits that have been provided, for example, to people who are uh, who are staying out of the workforce in order to take advantage of uh, increased unemployment um, spending. Uh, and that might relieve some of the pressure on this administration, probably not enough to be noticeable. But it tells you the extent to which this crisis is, as a political crisis, not just an economic matter, Um, is resonating in the political class, even if it hasn't yet dawned on the talking class and the commentariat. Well, and I think the Biden administration is kind of, again, sort of short-term thinking in terms of its messaging, because obviously the the concerns about inflation, they've they've taken them on board and they've released a paper by a couple of their economists, Jared Bernstein, another guy, and they framed it all as, oh, we expected this. It's just transitory. So if it doesn't stop soon, that phrase, oh, it's just transitory inflation, they told the working class couple who can't afford to buy groceries this month. I mean, that is harsh. And I don't think that was very smart. And they have not responded well. You know, Lauren Summers gave a talk to the Council on Foreign Relations the other day and said, the alarm is flashing red. And when he was told that the Biden administration's response was, oh, it's transitory, he said, now I'm even more worried. Right. 
He's I mean, the I think at the garden party, I know, but like he, he should, they should listen to this. These are people on their side of the economic aisle. Well, the one thing I'll say about this is they placed a huge bet. Like they, so they decided to go all in. You place a huge bet. You kind of understand that there are two sides to a bet, right? You'll win. And if you win, you win big. You can restructure American politics and you can go down in the history books as a transformational president. You can solidify your party's position for a decade to come and all that. And if you lose the bet, you, 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 you go down into ignominious decline. Your name is kind of like, uh, becomes a joke and your party is uh, deeply, deeply hammered and, 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 and has to recover, um, from the public's uh, judgment of it. So, you know, uh, in some ways it doesn't really matter what they say. They could say transitory or not. That could be something that they believe uh, or as, as Summers worries it is, or it can be as Noah says, kind of like uh, all sentient people sort of understand this, you know, this, um, uh, this calculus. And so they're just basically whistling. They're saying whatever they have to say, tap dancing until, the good stuff happens that they can unambiguously take credit for. We are talking about something so big uh, that that the public will render its judgment. I mean, yeah, I mean uh, they're betting with our money, so we should. <laughs> right, well, right, they're betting with our money. But I'm just saying, like, what they're what they're they they've they've placed their bet. Now they're trying to double down on the bet, which is something that you do because uh, with the jobs bill and all that, because. Once you're in, once you're all in, you're all in. So if you buy into this theory that this is all going to work and, you know, end up like creating massive growth and you're going to like provide all these goods and services to people and they're going to like it, you might as well keep going uh, because why would you, you know, okay, so you're going to, you're going to go bankrupt if the current bet is bad. So you might as well go bankrupt with an even larger bet uh, because maybe, you know, if you double down on your, you know, you double down on your you're seven and you, you know, you, you get a, you get an, you get an ace, then you've got 18. You're probably going to win. I, I have a question. I don't know the answer in, in part because it, it's, it's a kind of a crazy proposition here, but how much of the bet do you think is on the idea that the policies will work and actually deliver for people or that, um, the the policymakers will just be so beloved because their intentions were so good and so transformative and people seem to really be clamoring for it. Well, I think it's impossible to separate those out precisely because of the improvisatory nature of what happened to the Democratic Party after it won the runoffs in Georgia. Like, you know, we would be talking about an entirely different set of political circumstances right now if those races had gone the other way, or if one of them had gone the other way and not both, and and I don't know what we would be talking about, but we wouldn't be talking about, you know, two, four, six trillion dollars. And Biden, uh, the guy who ran as the kind of like sane, you know, like guy who was going to sort of like, you know, restore civility and kind, you know, be boring and all of that, uh, wouldn't have been seduced by the idea that uh, God had arranged it such that he could be the second coming of FDR. Uh, therefore, I don't know that there's anything all that considered here. It was more like, hey, we can do this. I mean, right. the one thing that pops into my head is when uh, Trump won in 2016 and, you know, he had said, look, I'm obviously going to have to give, give up my businesses and blah, 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 whatever that. And then he had a lawyer and the lawyer came to him and said, you know what, the way the executive branch is structured and the, the the definition of the executive and all this, 
You don't have to do that. There's no law that says you have to do that. It's not in the Constitution. If it's not in the Constitution, the Congress doesn't make laws governing the personal behavior of the President of the United States. Really? So you can do it. And then he was like, oh my God, I can do whatever I want. You, I mean, do you remember this? He sort of gave a press conference. This lawyer delivered this, you know, constitutional opinion of the President's of, of this question of conflicts of interest and all this. And he's like, oh my God, I can do whatever I want. Great. I'm going to do whatever I want now. You know, um, it's kind of like that with with Biden after Georgia or the Democrats after Georgia. Like they would have been restrained by simple political reality. Suddenly they're like much less restrained. And then they got, of course, they got that opinion from the parliamentarian who said, yeah, 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 you can do it through reconciliation. You can do all of this through reconciliation, meaning you only need 51 votes instead of 60. And then it was just like, okay, well, now, now it's party time. And that, and, and but that so, hasn't happened because the dirty little secret of the Democratic Party's agenda is not that they can't get to 60, but they can't get to 50. Right. No, but they got to 50. They got to 50 with the... They got that was to infrastructure. The parliamentarian's verdict was on infrastructure. Yeah. We haven't right. got an infrastructure bill yet. Right. Well, uh, fair enough. Okay. But I'm just saying, like, that was like, oh boy, let's see what we can do. Right. But they can't get to, they can't get to 50 on infrastructure because of you know, mansion and mansion and cinema. Right. So, um, uh, we are, we find ourselves, uh, in an interesting, like, you know, it's the thing about politics. It's nothing is ever the same as anything else. And everything always has its own, uh, twist. And obviously this is all happening at a time when the Republican party is going through a crucible of its own. And we can talk about that in a minute before I talk to you, of course, about our friends, uh, at headspace. I believe it's Headspace. Let me just double check that I'm supposed to talk to you about Headspace because I love Headspace. Uh, and I am pretty sure that's the case, but my brain isn't working all that well right now. And yes, it is Headspace. So Headspace, I need Headspace because it, of course, is the meditation app that helps uh, focus you, sleep, helps you sleep, helps you be better your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and that easy-to-use app, one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research, whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed, Headspace is a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easier for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. So, um... Uh, Liz Cheney uh, is now on a, a defeat tour, I think you could call it. Uh, the mainstream media, of course, very excited by her, uh, by the sacrifice of of, of, of Liz Cheney uh, in saying that uh, uh, being uh, defenestrated by the House Republican Conference. Uh, and uh, she is now going on the meet and saying, you know, she will do everything in her power not to let Donald Trump take over the party, that Donald Trump will use, will try to destroy our democracy in order to seize power again, and all of that. And um, uh, 
what interests me about the about the weird Republican response to this is that you've got um, you've got people like uh, uh, Madison Cawthorn um, like um, exulting exulting in her defenestration, right? Sort of young firebrand, you know, idiot, uh, you know, <laughs> putz jerk, um, you know. Uh, dancing on her you know dancing on her leadership grave at least um let me ask you a question for a second so liz cheney so if you are a trump person liz cheney is basically saying i'm gonna fight this right i'm gonna fight this and uh i'm not gonna let it stand i'm gonna do what i can to fight it why is that something that uh that bothers you so let her fight it according to you she's got no she's got no troops republican party is a trump party Trump's the king. Everyone, every knee shall bow. So let her do it. Let her do it. Then he can thump, womp her, womp her followers. You know, he can climb on their shoulders and you know, and 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 say, you know, I am the king of the world again, and use that to you know control the party, run again in twenty twenty four, and win. Why? Why are they not saying we welcome? Literally, you could say we welcome this fight because this is a fight we're going to win. I I don't need you know if they want it, bring it on. No problem for me. We're the winners. It's a very think about it for a minute. Like that's not what they're doing. Anyone got any uh, response? Well, wasn't the whole thing here that you know they didn't really want to talk about twenty twenty anymore and. You know, she doesn't, Liz Cheney doesn't represent the conference because all she does is talk about how they, you know, the, the election wasn't stolen and that really doesn't entirely comport with the party's position. Yeah, we want to move on from it, but also all the recounts and also, you know, all the legislation around making sure that balloting is is totally genuine and transparent and free from fraud. And also the former president of the United States banging on this drum all the time. And then Kevin McCarthy comes out yesterday and says, listen, I'm going to meet the president today. He's right in there. That's the president. We're all, this is over, right? This is behind us. But Liz Cheney didn't represent the conference because she was saying the same thing that the election's over and Joe Biden is the president. Um, So I'm just confused as to really what the problem was here. Did she not represent the conference's views? Does the minority leader not represent the conference's views whose views are are being misrepresented here i mean the whole point here is that is that this this shows you you know you can look at the trump administration and say it had these creative policies it did this it did that you know stuff that he didn't get credit for from the abraham accords which we'll talk about later to warp speed to you know various other things right trump himself the thing that fic- he was fixated on has always been fixated on and will always be fixated on is his own amour propre. Uh, that, that, that is what, that is what matters to him. And it is, it is, you are either somebody uh, who uh, kneels to him or he, you're somebody that he needs to destroy. And there do- doesn't really seem to be much difference. And it is the, it is the animating source of, of his passions. And oddly, you can understand it, right? You can understand, you could go through a whole, you know, pop psychology thing about what it is, narcissism and uh, the the absent, you know, hard to hard father. What, what, who cares? That doesn't matter. It's weird 
for other people to uh, to be um, to be motivated by the same emotional force that he is motivated by, because you can understand how it jazzes him and his soul, what it does, how it how it gives him the free song that he needs, makes him feel alive, and all of that. But these are people who aren't him, you know. They have their own things that they should be promoting, which like their own feeling themselves, you know, it's like, and and that's, but that's a good point because they also know, uh, because we've seen like sort of early polling, uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt, et cetera, et cetera, about what voters like. They liked a lot of Trump era policies while disliking Trump's personal style. So I'm with Noah, like why it's baffling that they are, that, that the Republican leaders are saying, we can't talk about Trump anymore. Actually, you should only be talking about the policies, which are which still give credit to Trump because he was the president who was in office when they when some of these things went down. That's fine. Like there is a way to kind of try to thread the needle. I'm not saying it's ethical or moral to do so. I'm just saying as a, strat- a strategic measure, that would actually leach a little bit of the venom of Trump's personality for the future elections, but they're not doing that either. But the well, most Trump- visible activist class on the right liked his style more than the policies. Or any no, policies, for that matter. Right. They they liked That's his true. affectation, his prickly nature. He didn't give one inch to any of his critics. But we have, especially if they like were that. right yeah. or logical or based in anything resembling our shared reality. That's what they liked, right? And that's what they can fundraise off of. Right. And that's literally Liz Cheney's biggest problem: is she's an impediment to fundraising goals. Okay, but here and the- you know what? I'm sorry. I'm just going to actually monologize a little bit here. These inside the beltway horse sense machinations about how she was just a really prickly personality and people couldn't really deal with her is just garbage because this isn't happening because she's a jerk. There's a lot of jerks in Congress. There's a lot of people who don't deserve to be in leadership who, who are still in leadership. And it has nothing to this is not happening because she's a pain in the butt. This is happening because she's saying things that don't comport with what Donald Trump's unreality, his preferred unreality is. And anybody who's trying to peddle this notion that she wasn't a good representative of the conference because she says exactly what they all think, as evidenced by what the minority leader said yesterday, is just peddling trash to try to get around the fact that this is a caucus of quislings. Okay, but you know, here's the interesting thing. You talk about the policies and the, you know, and Trump and all this. Trump doesn't care about the policies. How do you know this? Trump could be walking around taking a victory lap and joining in the fight to vaccinate by saying, I made these vaccines happen. That's me. Every time you get a needle in your arm, you're you're like, you're you're doing me a solid. You're 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 making it clear. I did this, I me, 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 right? That's the policy vanity or the policy narcissism. That does not motivate him at all. Like he mentions it on the fly every now and then when he thinks about it or something like that. His his is all negative. It's all about beating somebody else, right? It's not about having accomplished something, you know, unprecedented that he deserves credit for and that if he pushed his credit for it, it would make the people who would um, downplay or poo-poo it look small. They would look small. They would look petty. They would look like they were ungenerous. And this is the kind of way in which he could rebuild his reputation in some fashion, right? I mean, we have one poll out from NBC that says he's now at 32% approval, having won nearly, you know, 47% of the vote. 
He's down at 32%. Now, we don't know polls are bad, Republicans are undercounted, all of that. So you want to take that with a grain of salt also. But he could be pushing that, and he doesn't, because what he wants is revenge. What he wants is, and he wants some kind of, it is better for him that people are compelled to say that two plus two equals five, that the election was stolen, that what's going on in Maricopa County is noble with this ridiculous recount that is going on by the cyber ninjas um, and all of that, because that is true fealty. Making somebody say that they believe something false because they don't want to make you mad. Now that's somebody who you have cowed and have, you know, an own, right? You want to talk about owning the libs? This is owning the cons. And that is his, that is really where I think he is. And like I say, if he weren't, he would welcome the fight. He would say, well, what do you have to say about anything? Yeah, I'm right. You're a warmonger. I, you, you're the one, your family brought, took us into Iraq. I thought Iraq was stupid. What did you do about COVID? I did Operation Warp Speed. What did you do? Did you do anything? I don't think so, right? Did you do the Abraham Accords? I did the Abraham Accords. Is that what he's doing? No. What he wants is to have everybody destroyed so they don't even let him beat them in some odd way, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a fight about the future and policy. The, the policies for Trump and for his followers are pure byproducts. The, 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 the main thing is the style, is, is the temperament. And we know this for several reasons, uh, because Trump's followers went from defending him on warp speed before the vaccine came out to being kind of queasy about vaccines uh, once he was out of office, right? And if you are a true Trump fan and uh, you hear from people like me, for example, who say, who who are perfectly willing to praise uh, uh, an array of Trump policies, that gets me no credit with them because I'm not praising the man. (laughs) Right, because here's how this goes. It goes... Look, I, I, I did Operation Warp Speed. I, I moved heaven and earth to make sure that we had these these vaccines. Yeah, well, but you downplayed the virus initially. No, you didn't. No, I didn't. I always knew that the virus was was a terrible thing, and I, I, I did everything I possibly could to stop it. Well, here's what you said here, here, and here. No, I didn't say that. And then it becomes a, an argument over another unreality because he doesn't right. like he doesn't like, he can't stand even the the most minor admission of fault in any any aspect of his life and that is what becomes central because he will never let it go fair enough but um i'm just saying i just think it's an interesting weakness that they're showing because they could actually if you you thought about this politically in the long term having a fight inside the republican party an actual fight over uh over whether trump was a good or bad president in, in policy terms is a fight that trump could probably win and would actually do more to reestablish his reputa- re- reputation or to get him back to par at least if that's really what he wants but i mean the reason I why that's, that's what he wants. the reason why that scenario comes to mind john is because you were you introduced it by saying trump would say well you know i i thought iraq was stupid no he didn't he didn't the record is extremely clear about what his views were on the war, but it has become this sort of assumed reality that is false, totally fabricated, that he was somehow skeptical of this sort of thing. 
but it's just because he repeated it so often that we now all share his own false note version of reality. Well, and we also know that the policy must not matter, though, the fealty and loyalty to Trump does, because Stefanak, who's going to take, who is likely going to replace Cheney, is much more moderate a conservative than Cheney herself was on policy matters, right? She's not, she's she's just a much more moderate Republican than than Cheney. So if we care, if, if it was about policies and Republican values, you know, you got the watered down version now, but because she, you know, bent the knee to Trump, she's better in Trump too. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Well, it's not about conservative policies. A more populist Republican Party is, by definition, a more liberal Republican Party. Right. Yeah, but I mean, it's not even liberal because it's also anti-liberal. I mean, that's it's all it's all yeah. Yeah. Progressive is is a good way of putting it. Okay, so let's let's move on to um, uh, as we as the uh, as the barrage uh, of rockets from from Hamas uh, continues into its uh, third or fourth day. we are uh, seeing a very uh, interesting effort to retcon uh, the most successful foreign policy of the Trump administration. Um, Abe, you want to well, there's talk been, about uh, this? Yeah, I'm just trying to think of, of, of the various places we've seen. Well, uh, at the Washington Post, uh, Max Boot wrote a column about um, uh, how the, the the fighting in Israel now sort of uh, shows that the the Abraham Accords uh, are a dead letter or something. It's hard to actually follow the logic there. And that has been um, a line that we've seen now uh, proffered um, uh, by um, the, the, the anti-Trumps uh, sort of all over the place. Um, and it is, of course, on its face and, and deeper down, a preposterous assertion because the Abraham Accords... Uh, were uh, designed and and accomplished and continue to uh, reap the benefits from um, Israel normalizing relations with uh, the, the the Arab countries uh, in the region, and that that is ongoing. Um, it was. It's, it's. I got an example for you. Go Dan. ahead. Yeah. Um, Michael Crowley is the New York Times diplomatic correspondent who wrote quote. Trump officials often insist that they don't get more credit for achieving, quote, peace in the Middle East. We are now seeing why. The Abraham Accords normalized Israel's relations with Arab states, with which it was not actually in conflict. A worthy project that skirted a smoldering Palestinian dilemma that has again erupted. The entire point of the Abraham Accords was to decouple the uh, foreign policies, the geopolitics of the Sunni Arab states from the conditions on the ground in the Palestinian territories and in the mixed cities where they reside in Israel. And it was spectacularly re- re- successful because of that. That isn't an unintended consequence. It wasn't an oversight. It was the entire project. And by the way, regarding what's happening in Israel now, um, the Abraham Accords uh, are also successful in that the Arab countries involved want no part of of the of the Palestinian side of this. And that's right. good. You know, yeah, the Michael Crowley point here is you know, yet another example of the sort of ahistorical, anti-historical, anti-knowledge uh, way in which this stuff is talked about because the idea that Israel was not in conflict with uh the the 22 Arab countries that surround it is sheer insanity. The existence of that phalanx against Israel was the defining fact of Israel's existence for 
at least 60 years because of the implacable hostility of these countries against Israel, even if they were not actually literally at war, though they were in several wars, um, uh, Israel could not establish or maintain decent relations with countries all over the world that feared the oil power of the Middle East and feared that they would that that any kind of normalized relation with Israel would would result in terrible consequences for their uh, economic lifeblood. And so um, a key goal of American foreign world foreign policy has been to create a more normal existence in the Middle East so that this bizarre, um, you know, sort of like war of all Arabs against Israel did not play this role, this kind of distorting weird role in how world politics was handled. And you could make the claim that the Abraham Accords only happened because all of that was happening already, that it was a, it was a kind of um, a reification of, of existing real-world phenomena over the previous 20 years. But why meaning that the, this was a natural progression that pretty much started in the early 2000s and then moved onward. But why did it start and why did it move on? Because the Palestinians rejected statehood. The Palestinians rejected statehood. A deal was made for statehood at Camp David and they rejected it and started a terror war in response. And from that moment onward, the narrative that Israel was oppressing the Palestinians started to spring leaks all over the place. And then, and this is the most important aspect of this, we have people saying the occupation must end. This is all about the occupation. Israel decoupled, pulled out of the Gaza Strip in 2005. My nephew pulled Jews, my nephew weeping as he did it, as a, as a member of the IDF, pulled Jews out of their homes through the window when they wouldn't come out in order to remove them forcibly from homes that they had established, 8,000 people in Gaza, uh, so that they could be destroyed, so that uh, so that the Gaza Strip could be made Judenrein and Israeli-free. It was, it was the disengagement total, right? The rockets are launching at Israel and landing and hitting buses and being and you know and and causing people to live in shelters and all this because Gaza is not under Israeli dominion because Israel's not there. Hamas collected thirty thousand rockets. Didn't collect thirty thousand rockets because Israel is occupying the place in the world that Hamas controls. This is psychotic madness. Well, claim and- that the occupation, which is now a term that just refers to the fact that the state that the Palestinians rejected has not yet been created. This is what we hear from absolutely normal conventional people who know nothing, but they just, you know, they see something on TikTok and it's all fine with them. But this is so our friend Eli Lake over at Bloomberg has a great column today about about this, because in his argument, which I think it will I mean, we'll see if this plays out, but it, it has a compelling element to it. Is it? The Hamas strategy of always claiming victory by by you know launching rockets at Israel it might not work this time because for all the reasons that you've just laid out I mean it's been 
20 years ago they were doing this with George W. Bush. But 20 years ago, Saudi Arabia was also riled up about it and, you know, placing phone calls to the U.S. and saying, you better stop. And they're not doing that now because of the Abraham Accords, because of the shift in in uh, the region. And I think the it, it's why you see an escalation of the rhetoric about occupation and even apartheid uh, among the activist class. I mean, that's an act of desperation on their part. And I, I don't think it's going to, I mean, it's going to continue to be popular in the progressive enclaves of the U.S., like college campuses and whatnot, but it's not having a diplomatic effect as far as I can see. Right, well, let's talk about, let's talk about the uh, progressive response because um, something astonishing happened uh, in New York yesterday. Uh, Andrew Yang, who is the leading uh, candidate, is still, I believe, is still leading in the polls in the New York City mayor's race, who tweeted out on Monday a statement of support for Israel, which I think we talked about the other day. Um, you know, uh, New York City, 12% Jewish, uh, 12% Jewish vote, like important voting block. Um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Ortez, also a congressman from New York City, uh, uh, attacked him, right? Said it was shameful that he had, that he had tweeted this without reference to the suffering of the Palestinians and, 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 and on, uh, you know, Adolf Hitler and all this stuff. And Yang yesterday apologized. He apologized for his tweet, said it wasn't, you know, complex, didn't reflect the complexity of the situation. Um, he said his critics were right. Okay. So, so we are now in a circumstance in which, um, uh, the, uh, the, the young star of the democratic party has literally drawn a moral equivalence between Hamas and Israel, between a terror state and a democratic state. Uh, we are at a time of testing for the Biden administration. By the way, and it's important to say this because people don't like it when I say it and we get mail where people... So far, it is passing this test. It has not yet gone into a both sides must show restraint game because uh, yet. In fact, so so Biden released a statement saying that Israel has every right to, de- to defend itself. Um, and AOC, once again attacked that and said, um, it's shameful that Biden, this is not neutral language, um, she said. Um, it shouldn't be neutral language. And um, we should be thankful and applaud the fact that it wasn't neutral language. Right. So I, I think basically where, where, where uh, I think we all expect that uh, the longer this goes on, the less uh, the Biden people will be able to hold to um, hold on uh, to this uh, uh, position just because of um, the the natural tendency to say, look, I mean, the point is like, uh, look, help us out here. Like you're, you're giving me a lot of trouble. And of course, BB, you know, like was happy to give Obama trouble and uh, is, I don't think is happy to give Biden trouble. Who knows what's going to happen anyway. You can kind of you can kind of say, look, we're your friends. We give you three billion dollars, like like uh, you know, lay off. And then if you don't lay off, then you get mad. Right now, they're not doing that. And and with with the progressives yelling about Israel's misbehavior, supposed misbehavior, um, Biden is going to feel the pressure. And what's interesting, of Whoa. course, is that he's he's now spent seventy two trillion gazillion dollars, and AOC he buy, he doesn't buy peace from AOC at all. 
Like she's not saying, my God, that, that infrastructure bill you're proposing is really great. I'm not going to yell at you about this, you know, because you're the leader of my party and I don't, you know, and, 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 you know, thanks a lot for what you're doing. Oh no. Well, I have every reason to believe they'll cave, but there is the, the, the fact of the matter is the view is different from behind the resolute desk. And one of the genius um, events that has been precipitated by the Abraham Accords is the fact that the Sunni Arab states replaced their geopolitical balancing act they're with from Israel, Palestine with Iran. And Iran is the executor of this hostile action. Iran paid for every single rocket that's raining down in Israel right now. Iran is celebrating every act of violence that is being precipitated by its proxies in Gaza and in the West Bank, increasingly. Um, and the geopolitical um, constraints that are imposed on Washington, which has to balance its interests in all these capitals in Morocco and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and, and Jordan, etc., cetera, um, pro- constrains them to a certain extent, because if they're to come out with moral equivalencies, it jeopardizes their position in the broader Middle East. And don't forget Turkey, because there is some evidence that Turkey is which is also a kind of sponsor of Hamas, now an avowed enemy of Israel and an enemy of the United States, by the way, despite weird U.S. efforts to suck up to uh, Erdogan. Um, uh, Turkey may be playing uh, uh, playing its hand here uh, in, in Gaza. We're going to learn more about that in the, in the days and weeks to come. But in which case, what we have here is not David versus Goliath, but a version of a version of grand this is like a the the grand game i mean this is a this is an international chess game involving israel the united states turkey and iran this is not just you know which which only highlights the success of the abraham accords here because if it's a gr- yeah. grand game they've they've yeah. we we've, we've taken those countries out of the uh, out of the other side yeah much better to play risk than yep. some of the other games right. we've been playing yeah. well not just yeah. out of the other side created a block mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that did not exist right. that is now right. aligned with washington's well, interest well it, it, that's going to be tested also by by how how long this lasts and we'll we'll i mean i i i think it'll be enduring but you know you can't you can't bet on that i just think to, just to uh, just to finish this out that um you know the 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 classic image of the Palestinian oppressed by 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 an Israeli is a kid with a rock who throws the rock at a at a at a soldier and then gets shot. Right? That's and and you can understand you shouldn't throw a rock, but you know that 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 is something that kind of image or that thing that is emotionally devastating and it's hard to I don't know argue again whatever you know you sort of come up with a long, complicated, calm explanation of why this happens like this. This is rocket. This is, these are, these are missiles being fired at people. Okay. The Israelis, when they went onto the Temple Mount on Monday, right, they were using dummy bullets and cannons with smelly water and stuff like that. They, they weren't, that's you know doesn't look good, right? Doesn't look good the way the way cops putting down a riot never looks good, including you know when we see it in America in 2020. Like it doesn't look good, even if it's necessary. Firing rockets at cities doesn't look good, never looks good. When does it look good? The thing about the rocks, <laughs> they're not throwing rocks because they only have rocks. They have rockets. 
They're throwing rocks because the image is so effective. Right, but when they were just first throwing rocks in 1987 in the first Intifada, they really did only have rocks. Right. So they had rocks. And so that was a that was a very effective, you know, that was there was something very emotionally effective about that. You know, we are doing what we can. Literally David versus Goliath, right? How did David take down Goliath with a slingshot? So that that was an image that was very carefully crafted but cleverly crafted to get people on their side emotionally. And Hamas, unless you are committed to a different narrative about everything that you already believe, uh, it's just not the same. And 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 every foreign minister in the world can sort of understand. You can go back. You can say, look, none of this would happen if somehow the, the rules of the road between Israel and Palestine, Israel and the Palestinians were different. And that's obviously true. But you can't, they are what they are. And you deal with reality as it is. And you have rockets being fired. And by the way, these people have all these, um, you know, ambassadors and diplomatic staff and they're living in Tel Aviv and they're running into the shelters. Don't think they're not. It's like, oh, you know what? This is all about Israel. I'm sitting here at my desk. Like, you know, every person who works not only at the American embassy, but works at every embassy is uh, not that there's the American embassy is not in Tel Aviv anymore, but okay. I mean, maybe it's too shallow, but there's also the possibility that, you know, the satisfaction that is derived from dragging the you know dragging down the abraham accords isn't that it's a logical assessment of their efficacy but that it's just a you know it digs into trump's legacy well and that's really all that matters the the game was given away by my my friend uh uh david from old friend of mine i have a lot of disagreements with him but he said something like oh jared kushner now here now good work jared kushner okay so like really honestly like Jared Kushner is somehow now not only the Abraham Accords didn't work according to like Michael, but they're sort of at fault. So it's like, oh great, let's just figure out a way to talk crap about Jared Kushner. You know, really, like that's what you deal with when you have like you know Jews under under attack by 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 rockets. That's like uh, uh, bad, you know, bad form. Very 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 bad form. And with that. Uh, We'll see you again tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.